This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. Tithing and Dominion by Edward A. Powell and Rusus John Rushdooney. Copyright 1979. Published by Ross House Books Incorporated. Chapter 4. The Tithe in Scripture. The principle of the first is important to Scripture, because the first represents the totality and what the first is and does has implications for all. Thus, Adam, the first man, by his sin has affected all of us. We are told, quote, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. End quote. Galatians 5, 9, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. The totality is, in principle, governed by the firstling. As Paul states it in Romans eleven sixteen, quote, For if the first root be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. End quote. Thus, clearly, the Bible sees the first as the root, and as the governing factor for the totality. This is why our tithes and offerings are not and cannot be the leftovers, or the last of our income, paid when all our personal needs are cared for, but the first fruits. Only then does the Lord command us. God is not an object of our charity, to be cared for when all our needs are provided for, but he is the Lord, our Creator, King, Absolute Owner, and our Judge and Redeemer. If we forsake the principle of the firstfruits, we forsake the Lord. The first is at times a translation of thy fullness, as in Exodus 22:29, Thou shalt not delay to offer the first, thy fullness, of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors. The firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. End quote. We find this law of the firstborn in Genesis 22, Exodus 13:1, 2, and 15, 34:19 and Numbers 8, 16, and 17. All the firstborn, we are told in Exodus thirty-four twenty, and Numbers three thirteen and 44 through 51, and 8, 18, are to be redeemed from the Lord. This applies to man and animals alike. Exodus 13, 11 through 13, 22, 30, Exodus 34, 19 through 20, Leviticus 27, 26 and 27, and Numbers 18, 15 through 17. This redemption from the Lord did not buy the independence of the redeemed person or animal from God, but simply freed them from the prompt judgment of death. They are emphatically declared to be the Lord's, whether redeemed or executed. Thus, the redeemed firstborn male must serve the Lord. Animals are to be used to the glory of God, and man must also be the instrument of the Lord in his ordained calling. Not all animals could be redeemed, only the unclean. The others, the clean male firstborn animals, were to be sacrificed to the Lord. They were a constant reminder that the redemption of the rest of the firstborn, the unclean animals, and the clean, because fallen in Adam, the firstborn male of mankind, owed their redemption to the vicarious sacrifice of the substitute ordained by the Lord. Numbers 18, 15-17 gives us an example of the requirement. Quote, Everything that openeth the matrix in all flesh, which they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of men or beasts, shall be thine. Nevertheless, the firstborn of men shalt thou surely redeem, and the firstling of unclean beasts shalt thou redeem. And those that are to be redeemed from a month old shalt thou redeem, according to thine estimation, for the money of five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty geras. But the firstling of a cow, or the firstling of a sheep, or the firstling of a goat, thou shalt not redeem. They are holy. Thou shalt sprinkle their blood upon the altar, and thou shalt burn their fat, for an offering made by fire, for a sweet savor unto the Lord. End quote. 
The flesh of these clean animals was then eaten, Numbers 18.18, 18, as an act of communion with the Lord and in thanksgiving. See also Deuteronomy 14.23 and 24-26 and 15.19-22. The clean animals are holy and thus acceptable to the Lord, Numbers 18.17. The first fruits of farm produce were also specified as belonging to the Lord, Exodus 23.19, 34.26, Leviticus 19:24, 23:10-11, Numbers 15:17-21, Deuteronomy 18:4, and 26:1-11. These included also the first fruits of the wine made from grapes, the first fleece when sheep were sheared, Deuteronomy 18:4, and the first cake and dough, Numbers 15:17-21. In brief, in every area of man's life, he is to remember that the Lord has prior claim on all that he is, does, and has. These laws of the first fruits were observed in many areas of the early church, and, as I have shown in the Institutes of Biblical Law, were continued in some areas for centuries. To this day, in Soviet Armenia, Armenian farmers observe the law of the first fruits. In the United States, it was once common in farming areas, and farmers, while not observing all aspects of the law, still brought first fruits to their pastor, and in some cases, used that word. The tithe is closely related to the first fruits and is another form of the same principle. The tithe in antiquity, apart from Israel, was a tenth or tax paid to a human king, a fact God cites in 1 Samuel 8:15 and 17. Having rejected the Lord God as king, Israel would now pay its tithes to an oppressive human king who would lead them into bondage. 1 Samuel 18:18. 18, 18. God's requirement of the tithe is simply the declaration that he is Lord and king over his covenant people. To deny the tithe is to deny God's covenant, and to deny that God is our Lord and King. It is simply another way of saying, quote, We have no king but Caesar. End quote. John 19.15 A cry not only of the chief priests who crucified our Lord, but of the antinomians who crucified him afresh today. The tithe is a royal tax. It is God's claim on us as Lord and King. The Lord, in collecting the tithe, is gracious to his people. The tithe for farmers whose crops or herds were not normally turned into cash was of the tenth of the flock, literally. This meant that if a man had 89 calves, his tithe amounted to eight, since no tithe was possible on the last nine. On everything else, it was the first tenth, but the flock or herd not being divisible, the Lord took the last of every ten. This appears in Leviticus 27, 30-32. Quote, and all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. End quote. The tithe is a tax not on our capital, but our income or increase. It is not a tax on ten percent of the fruit trees, but the fruit thereof. It does not take the tenth of all the herd, but a tenth of the new calves of the herd, or the lambs of the flock. Because it is the prior claim on us, it is the tenth before we, our dependents, or the state take their share. No one has a priority claim that outranks God's right or diminishes it. The tithe was given to the Levites, who stored the animals and grain in storehouses, Malachi 3.10, until they could either be used or sold. It is a silly and self-serving modernism which leads some clergymen to insist that the storehouse is the church. It was a tithe barn. Tithe barns, no longer in use, 
still survive in Europe and some in the United States. The Levites gave 10% of the tithe to the priests, Numbers 18.25-26. The Levites had very broad functions in Israel. They were the teachers, Deuteronomy 33.10, the musicians, the judges at times, the medical authorities, and more. Superintending foods and their cleanliness was a part of their duty. There are those who claim that there was only a single tithe, others say two tithes, and still others three. Henry Lanzel in The Tithe in Scripture, a summary statement of his two-volume study, The Sacred Tenth, held to three. The first tithe was the Lord's tithe, known also as the Levite's tithe, which we have already discussed. The second tithe is cited in Deuteronomy 14, 22-27, and was for rejoicing before the Lord, and the Levite was to be included in the celebration. The second tithe was closely associated with the Sabbath principle, in that it called for sacrifices and feasting at the Passover, a week, the Feast of Tabernacles, a week, and the Feast of Weeks, a shorter period. This was a festival tithe. In a sense, it was comparable to the modern idea of a family vacation, but with an enormous difference. These festivals required the assembling of the men of Israel, who normally took their families with them, to rejoice in and before the Lord. This did not mean that they necessarily spent their time in worship services, but it does mean that their rest and festivities were rejoicing in the Lord. The modern family Christian summer conferences are closer to the meaning of the second tithe than our vacations. The second tithe included the Levites annually. The third tithe, coming on the third and sixth years of the seven-year calendar of the Lord, was a poor tithe, to be shared with the local Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. These needy ones were also cared for every year by gleaning and by gifts. The tithe is not a gift to the Lord, nor to the needy. It is God's tax. Only that which we give above and beyond the tithes is a gift or offering. This tithe is cited in Deuteronomy 14:28-29. At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shalt lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within thy gates, shall come, and shall eat and be satisfied, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. End quote. As Lanzel restates the conclusion of verse 29, quote, The objective of the tithe was that Jehovah might bless the work of the tithe-payer's hands. End quote. According to Lanzel, quote, It would seem, then, that the Mosaic law enjoined upon the Israelite to pay yearly, in connection with his religion, two-tenths, and, at the end of three years, a third-tenth of his income. End quote. In addition, God dictates the use not only of the first fruits, but the last fruits, i.e., the fruit of the top branches, the grain in the corners of the field, on the edges or the ditch banks, and the stray bunches of grapes on the vines. These last fruits are to be left for the poor, the gleaners. God is, quote, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, end quote. Revelation 1.8 And his rights and claims are total in every generation. Hence, he claims the first fruits for his purposes, and the last fruits also, and everything in between is to be used by us to his purposes in our calling. The gleaning law appears in Leviticus 19, 9-10, and Deuteronomy 24, 19-21. Further, the Lord claims more than a tenth of our time, one day out of seven, various holy festivals in the year, and seventh and sabbatical year, and the fiftieth, or jubilee year. Again, there was the poll tax, Exodus 30, 11 through 16, or throne tax, which provided for civil atonement, i.e. the covering or protection of society by God the King. 
There are many other details of God's requirements, but this should be clear by now. God's requirements throughout the tithes and duties has as its purpose the government and extension of the kingdom of God. These taxes provide for what we now call health, education, and welfare, as well as for worship, the ministry of grace, for missions, and the ministry of justice, the state. The kingdom of God requires the taxes ordained by God. If we are citizens of that kingdom, we pay its taxes. If we are outlaws, we do not pay. If Caesar is our king, then we are content to let Caesar provide his kingdom. If Christ is our king, we meet Caesar's demands, quote, for conscience sake, end quote, Romans 13, 5. But we first of all give to our Lord all that he requires so that his kingdom may prevail. We cannot have God's order, kingdom, and blessing except in God's way. General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, saw in darkest England and the way out the need for Christian giving of money, time, prayer, and action. He saw that most church members were, quote, mummy Christians, content to, quote, accept Christ, and then to remain as inactive, ungiving, and as immobilized as an Egyptian mummy, and about as useful to the Lord. Those who take their faith seriously will recognize that the triune God is no less our Lord now than he was before the cross. We owe him the tithe and the poor tithe. We need to rest and rejoice before the Lord, and family conferences and festivals need to be developed and strengthened. We need to create tithe agencies and strive to govern every area of life and thought in terms of the Word of God, and to enjoy and glorify God in all things. Our Lord is emphatic, quote, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, end quote. Matthew 7.21 can anyone deny the law of God, i.e., the major part of the Bible, and still do the will of the Father? Whose will do they then do? Such people speak of being led by the Spirit, but in practice their lives manifest the barest compliance with a few laws, i.e., no adultery, usually, no murder, and no obvious theft with respect to men. They steal from God daily, Malachi 3.8-9. Their goal seems to be minimal religion, fire insurance, not the service of the Lord. Can it be theft before the cross to withhold tithes and offerings from the Lord and a virtue the day after? Are we on a lower moral plane than the people of old Israel? The New Testament not only assumes the law of God and presupposes it, but repeatedly cites it to make its points. Paul's great argument in Romans is not to make void the law, but to establish it. Romans 3.31 Paul cites the law repeatedly as his authority, especially to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7.39 9 8f, 14, 21, and 34. Not only does the New Testament see believers in Christ as the new Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, and the choice of twelve apostles to signify that the twelve patriarchs and tribes of Israel have been replaced, but the same system of government by elders, with a supreme council of elders such as the Sanhedrin, appears in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Israel has elders ruling the synagogue, elders of the country, elders of the city, and so on, governing every area of life in terms of God's law. There is a hint that a similar variety of elders, officers, and governments appears in the New Testament. Several words with differing emphases are given for elder. Presbyteros, elder. Episcopos, overseer. Poimen, shepherd or pastor. Didaskalos, teacher. Prostates, leader. Hegumenos, ruler. And Kybernesis, governor, administrator. It is possible that all these terms apply to only one office. It is also possible that the last, Kybernesis, which appears in 1 Corinthians 12.28, as governments, 
sums up all the other forms of eldership in the ecclesia or assembly or kingdom of Christ. It is certainly reasonable to assume that, as old Israel had several kinds of elders for various areas of government in God's kingdom, so too did the New Testament community. The term elder meant for old Israel one who ruled according to God's law in a particular domain. The use of this word in the New Testament is evidence of a like concept of government. The unity of Scripture is basic to Christian faith. The whole of the Bible proclaims the triune God and His law word, His salvation by sovereign grace, Christ as the promised seed and the last and faithful Adam, man outside of Christ as fallen, incapable of redeeming himself, dead in sins and trespasses, and under the death sentence of the law of God. All this and more the word declares. The triune God, the Lord our God, is one God, and his word is one. It is a unity because God is a unity.